Hey everybody, Steve Beecham here for another episode of Beach Talks, and uh, I've got my buddy Shane Matthews here, and Shane's an inventor, and he's brought some products that he's going to show us that he's uh, uh, invented and worked on, and he's kind of the guy in town if you're trying to figure out how to invent something and get it made and the whole process, he's a go-to guy, and a lot of people down at the ACDC, or really the ATDC whatever it is, Atlanta Tech Village or something like that. He works down there, he's got a shop and stuff. And so we're gonna explore some of that with him and kind of explore how an inventor thinks and and see what we come up with. So Shane, thank you for being here. I really, really appreciate it. So kind of start me off. You were saying, you showed me a picture. I got it or you got it of a 20 year old Shane. I don't know. And so have you always been into inventing stuff or, or how did you get him? get going in that area so I, I guess it was I was kind of born into it uh, and I think about it now I've got a couple girls and my youngest is kind of the same mindset oldest is a little bit creative too is is I, I think from the day one my parents probably agree with you I just thought differently and I was always taking stuff apart now when you say back thought different. differently what do you how, how can you classify that thought differently uh, well I guess it depends on who you're around. A lot of people I'm around now, they kind of think like I do. <laughs> um, it's destroy stuff to see how you can make it better. Oh, okay. Uh, and pull it apart. Pull it apart, look at it, study it, figure it out. Um, try to put it back together. Usually you put it back together in a different way than you took it apart. And so, does, so sometimes, sometimes it, it doesn't work, right? Most of the time it doesn't work. Not <laughs> as the original design was intended. Well, you remember the first thing you took apart? My dad gave me a little radio control boat um, that I created when I was probably about eight or nine years old. And I was fascinated by airboats and um, didn't have one, but I had a radio control car. So I disassembled it, uh, took some actually a bunch of beer cans my dad had laying around the house, taped them up together. That was a flotation, took some cardboard, duct tape. Uh, rubber band plowed airplane and I disassembled the radio control car took those other pieces and parts and made a, a little airboat out of it and it worked uh, so it's so, like a like like a pontoon boat like a, almost sitting almost, on bud cans or something. right with a fan on it fan like on the back would air, yeah just like an airboat would work wow and uh, so I took the the drivetrain chassis apart took the electric motor shoved the airplane prop on the motor took the steering servo and put a piece of cardboard on it so the steering servo actually moved a piece of cardboard and I had a boat. Wow. And uh, put it on the lake? Put it in the swimming pool. Swimming pool. And it worked? It worked. <laughs> and so did that spur you on? Did you get excited from something like that? or? Um, well, I think it was a combination of being throttled, uh, but then also having the ability. I've got a photo somewhere. I didn't bring it with me. Uh, when I was 12 years old, building a go-kart. When I was probably about the same age, 9 or 10, my dad's best friend had a welder. Uh, and I wanted to weld. So I convinced him to teach me the basics of welding, and then I convinced him to let me bar the welder and convinced him and my dad to wire it up in our garage, and I started scavenging for steel and started sticking stuff together. And so I've got... The go-kart never ran, never operated on its own power, uh, but you can't really expect much more from a 12-year-old. <laughs> I wouldn't guess, but that was... Kind of that was the idea, so idea. build the frame of the go-kart mm -hmm. and figure it out. So how did you get, what was your first thing that you did that you thought, okay, this is going to be what I do? I don't know that I ever thought about this is a thing I want to do. Um, in around second grade, we were asked what we wanted to be when we grow up. And I've got a paper, my dad's actually still has the original copy of it, where I wrote about being an inventor and an innovator. And I said I just wanted to build and create things that were going to make people happy and change the world. Uh, and that was in second grade. So I guess pretty early on I had the drive to innovate and I saw things that uh, I could do to impact so do you always look at stuff and say, I can make that better or I could, I could do it different? Do you have, a, have that sort of thought process? I do. Uh, so, That's interesting. Yeah, so most of the things I look at, I ask why. So there's a lot of questioning. Why was this made this way? 
Why was it not make some some other well, way? That's interesting. So, does a why make you think of a way that maybe you could do it better sometimes or not? Where does the why usually lead you, I guess, is what I'm asking. Sometimes the why is just why does it exist to begin with. There's a lot of things I see that I ask, why does this exist? What's the purpose of it? Um, and nothing else. And then I think when I was younger, being naive and not understanding the world, there's a lot of whys. Yeah. Uh, especially why do certain things exist? And that was really, I think, um, some of the looking back some of the early stages was uh -huh. just that curious thought. So uh, show us some of the, the stuff that you've worked on. So if you want to fast forward a little bit um, to some of this stuff, this, this is all, uh, I started my, kind of jumping forward, I started my first business when I was like 1920, uh, scaled it, made some money with it, had a great business partner. Uh, ultimately he took the business from me, but taught me a bunch of stuff. But that gave me the financial freedom to take some risk. And I joined a startup, Johnson Research, and that was the inventor of the original Super Sucker water gun. And that gave me the opportunity to work on crazy projects. And I brought a lot of the technology from my youth and knowledge from that. So were they here in Atlanta? In, in Smyrna. Okay. So through that, uh, with having the, the, all the stuff from the Super Sucker, we had access to other stuff. So this is actually some of the the first shots of tooling for some of the Nerf uh, Airjet product line, which is all compressed air. So we innovated and designed all the mechanisms in here, licensed it to Nerf. This is one of the very first ones. It still functions, so if you shoot somebody, the camera, whatever you want to shoot. Uh, these are some of the products that, that resulted from all that same core technology. Um, these are all the very first shots of tooling before it hit the shelf. Um, you know, another and it's one. all about like pumping it yeah. up like a bicycle, right? Yes, all compressed air. So prior to that, the way they shot in the foam darts for springs and using air or uh, just rubber bands. Spring loaded spring or something. Loaded. Spring loaded. And so the performance of these were way past anything else. So this is where some of the innovation comes in. This is actually, again, kind of going back to the very first shots of tooling. And I'm kind of working from the shelf backwards to the prototype. You can see here, so this is, this is obviously, you know, this gun before it actually got painted when they're first doing it. And the camera may not be able to see, but this is real thin walled. Uh, there's cuts and all these things where it didn't really function, didn't look final. We had to go in and actually fine tune the tooling, the molds before it got to the final shape. But to step back a couple more steps, um, these are some different nozzles for some of the super soakers. Uh, that was 3D printed. This was a casting of that. Now, wait a minute, print. when was that 3D printed? Has that been 1993. Wow, I didn't think that went back that far. Mm -hmm. So when people started talking about 3D printing, I was like, oh wow, I gotta figure out what this new 3D print thing is. And then I realized the technology they're using was actually the predecessor to what I was using in the early 90s. Uh, and it was just time to catch up to the market. So um, those, those are 3D printed parts. Um, these, this is actually, again, 3D printed. Wow. Uh, parts uh, that resulted in a multitude of prototypes and these are still if you can listen still works so I built this in probably 93 94 time frame uh, based on those 3d printed parts and this is actually the mold talking about the mold this is the actual mold that those parts came out of oh so that's how they do mm -hmm. it so you take, and this is for This is injection molding? No, this is uh, RTV molding and urethane casting. So how do you get uh, the plastic into that? You don't inject it in? You do through the top holes. These are little vents. Uh, so I take a syringe, just like you would see at a doctor, put it in one of these holes and squirt it in through a syringe. Then you put this whole mold inside of a tank that's under pressure, and it pushes and forces all the air bubbles out. 
And then that way, can you put the different colors in the, mm -hmm. you can make it whatever color you so want. If you look, you'll notice that this blue is this blue. This white is this white. And so what I would do is in the mold, mix different colors, and then I would miss and match the pieces afterwards to do different color schemes on the guns through single shots. That's incredible. So, uh, you know, there's, and then to back up prior to that, this is going to be a little bit, this is a lot more, this is made out of wood. Mm. If you look up here, you can see it. I'm not sure how well yeah. it can show up on camera. And when I did this and I hand carved that out of balsa wood. This too? Mm -hmm, all that's wood. And so wow. it, it looked aesthetically like something you could go buy. But this is what, when I look at things, this is where, uh, as I talk about now with what I do, is I work with startups now and help them innovate. And what I would say is the kind of the prototype, minimal viable product, minimal marketable product, and then the manufacturable product. There's kind of the stages, whether it's physical products or software, it's all kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. So this would be kind of that minimal viable product where I could hand this to you. You could play with it. I could get feedback. You could tell me it doesn't feel right. It's too big, too small. And then from there, I can make the changes. And then it could result into this. And that's kind of the evolution. That's the evolution. So if you're going to do a product, your first step is to do the minimum viable product. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then would you do that out of plastic these days or wood or what? How Most of the time now is 3D printed because 3D printing is so cheap now. It is cheap. So and available. So how does that work to create a 3D prop, 3D printable of something that somebody's sitting there in, in your workshop and you're trying to figure it out? I mean, you have to you have to build the the form for it first, or well, it it's a combination of what you're trying to get to. Quite often, I'll still build something out of balsa wood or what they call wren shape just for foam study model to get the size and shape of it mm -hmm. before I go into that next stage of doing the CAD modeling. Right. Um, so you would go put it on a CAD? Some people jump straight into the CAD. And and then the CAD is what you would use from that to go do the model from it. Because right. it basically you got a blueprint mm -hmm. of what you're trying to do. And then you and then you gotta make sure it functions, right? Right. Okay, so that's the first thing. If somebody's got an idea or a product, they got to get to that stage. Uh, well, the first thing is make sure that you have something somebody cares about. That's the first stage. Because if you can go through all those things and make something people don't care about... Then you wasted your time. Waste your time. All right, so how do you do the first stage of finding out if somebody really wants that product? Talk to people. Talk to people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Old-fashioned. Just Old-fashioned. Just like we're doing here. Just talk right. to people. Okay, so. And you need to make sure that you have conversations with people and you don't ask, hey, do you like this? You need to figure out if you're really solving a problem. Right. Or building something that they will pay for. So the main thing is, are you solving a problem? Mm-hmm. So then, and so then, but you also got to get it in front of the right people, right? Your customers. Your potential customers. Yeah. So. So. I wouldn't ask somebody that doesn't that I'm not trying to address mm -hmm. as a customer if they would be my customer because they're not my target market. Gotcha. I'm not trying to solve their problem. So you start off with having an idea of a problem you want to solve. You find people to talk with that you feel have that problem. You have conversations to validate the problem. But that's you huge, y'all. That's huge right there. Mm -hmm. So you gotta you you start with the problem. And then you go talk to the people that should have that problem or potentially right. have that problem. And then you want to find out if you're solving that problem. Right. But that's the same thing with everything, really. It's right? everything. Everything. All right. So it, a lot of people don't do it that way, right? They've got something and they're trying to push it into something, exactly. right? They haven't figured out that there's a problem. Right. Or, or in my world, that would be a pain, right? What's yes. your pain? Can I solve your pain? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. When you look at it, is what you're really going for is the root cause. So when you think about like the root cause of something versus a symptom of something, you know, if you cut your arm off, I mean, it really is is hurting. But are you going to take a Tylenol, or do you, or do you really need something <laughs> more or something? Right? Yeah. And so if you just take a Tylenol to try to you know say, oh yeah, my, my arm's hurting, you're going to bleed out. 
But if you look down and say, hey, man, I'm bleeding. I need a tourniquet. You know, I need a surgeon. Well, now you get down to that that root cause of the pain. Right, right. All right, so that's the first part, that we're solving a the problem. Then the second part is... Will they pay for it? Will they pay for it? All right, how do you go through that process? Well, that's where you start... That's where it gets a little bit tricky because you go from the theory of, yes, they have a problem to, all right, now you validate it. That's where that minimal viable product comes in. So you build something to the very lowest cost and spec that you can put in front of them to, for them to use and get feedback from and try to sell it to them. And, and some people would say minimum viable product and minimum marketable product. So the minimum viable product is the first things you can start getting feedback to make sure that it's really solving the problem and that they have interest in it. Mm-hmm. The first marketable product is one that they're paying for. And it still might not be the final product, but it's the one that they're paying for that really validates that you have something that they're willing. But are to you already into the manufacturing process at that time? I mean, have you already had to make something? I mean, you've got to, I guess you got to keep playing with the the introduct, the thing that they've got to taste and feel and touch right. till they're like, yeah, go make this, right? And yes, we'll pay X for that. Now, where does that come into play with what your costs are? How do you say? You don't think about cost in the beginning. Oh, that's Because again, you have to validate. So this is where most people end up spending a lot more money because they'll go through this process of, of doing all the manufacturing, tooling, and design, and then they realize they missed it. And they just spent all this money on the final product. When if they were just spent a little bit more time and resources up front to validate it, then when they go into that manufacturing process, they've been right. So validation to you means that the person sitting across the table has said, I will buy X amount of those at, and I'll pay you X. No, it's not that they're saying it that they're giving you a check. <laughs> Show me the money. Show me the money. People talk all the time. All right, so then you get to that thing, and then I hear about this all the time, like on Shark Tank and stuff, about purchase orders mm-hmm. and things like that. How do you know that you've got a customer that's going to pay you? Well, a lot of that, when they start getting into the purchase orders, quite often when you look at the back channel of how things work, the supply chain, you have buyers out there that are constantly talking with customers. It's their customers, so they understand what those customers are asking for. And they're looking for a solution to those customers' problems or pain points. And you just happen to have these subsets of solutions, and it might be your solution or someone else's solution, but they're looking for a solution or a product to sell their customer. And so they already have a really strong idea and indication of what their customers are willing to pay Hmm. based on the historical data that they sold in or request for that so why can't you start there and go to those people that have those problems and say what's your problem and let me see if i can go fix it you can you have to have a relationship with that person yeah that comes back to relationships yeah and so if you if you got and they're doing the customer discovery for you right they're still doing the customer discovery so that still happens they don't know how to solve the problem they're finding someone who does and quite often if i don't know how to solve a problem if i identify a problem and I don't have a solution for it, even if I do have a solution for it, first thing I do is go look for other solutions. My solution may not be the lowest cost or the best solution. There may be a better one. Mm-hmm. Or a lower cost. Okay, so you said you don't worry about what they're gonna, what it's going to cost you to make it. Not initially, because I've got to match uh, what the customer wants and needs and what they're willing to pay. So through those discovery processes, I try to get a good idea of what their budgets are, what they'll pay. Mm-hmm. And then I have to make sure that I can produce something or create something that falls into that price point of the category. So how do you find out what that margin needs to be? A lot of it's intuition and experience. Yeah. So this is also where a lot of first-time inventors and entrepreneurs struggle. It's because they don't have that historical data, that experience, and they don't have that mentor network around them to help them drive down to that. So like if you're in retail, right? So if I'm gonna make this shirt, I'm gonna make this shirt for 25 bucks, I'm gonna sell it to you to 50, and then you're gonna sell it to them for 100, right? right? And they call that keystone. How does it work in things like 
you know, toys and stuff like that. Is those the same markup mm-hmm. there? Or, you know, like software's got really huge markups in it. A lot of software does. So I look at it as what's the problem I'm solving more than what's my margins of markup, cost of goods. Uh, if I'm solving a problem that, say that you've got a problem, it costs you $100,000 a year to address that problem. I have a solution that costs me $10 to solve that same problem. If I sell it to you for $50, $100, it's a no-brainer, but you're spending $100,000. Why would I not sell it to you for tw- for 25000 or, or seventy five. Okay. I can sell it to you for 75000 and say, hey, look, I'm going to save you $25,000 a year. How would you like me to save you $25,000 a year? Your eyes pop up. You're like, yeah. And I, and I just made 74000 and change. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's really cool. So that's knowing mm-hmm. basically what your what your customer's bandwidth on what their issue is and what how serious it is and how much they're wanting to solve that problem. Depends on the size of the pain. Okay, now, how does that come back to when you're introducing something new to the market and you're trying to get Mattel or Disney or somebody to, to come on board with, hey, this is cool. And well, It's not just Mattel, Disney. It's, it's Tesla. It's Apple. It's Dell. It's Coca-Cola. It's anybody who is selling a product to someone else. Uh, corporate sales b2b sales are a little bit different than b2c sales to consumers but the whole idea is that you have to understand what the market is what they're looking for and design and drive products to solve that and and really it comes back to relationships conversations communications uh, with those people who are going to be your buyers so does a guy like you get those phone calls from people going hey i got this problem can you help me solve it yes so so this is where um, people hear about that unfair advantage. <laughs> it's unfair. It's unfair advantage. Um, and it comes around in a lot of areas. When I was working heavy in the industry before, I had, took a little sabbatical, so I kind of stepped away. But, but when I was uh, hitting hard and heavy, I had a waiting list of people that would just wait for time for me to get on the calendar to go do brainstorming sessions with them. And they would contract me to come in and meet with their engineering and innovation teams just to lead brainstorming sessions with them and to help them drive down solutions to problems. And they would, and, and when they do that brainstorming, would they just pay you as a consultant then, right? Or would they, or was there a way for you to walk away and go try to put something together or both or? Both. Some I would do, uh, sometimes I would do day rates, uh, sometimes I would do hourly rates, and sometimes I'd work on a royalty structure. Hmm. So any innovation that me or my team came up with would get paid uh, royalty for some amount of time. Based you on get all that paperwork signed up front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, it's relationships. Right. So, so this is the difference, and this is where uh, a relationship matters. If someone like myself goes to a corporation has a track record of innovation, mm-hmm. and I've got a really solid... Um, just, just deep it, relationship. Just deep relationship with that individual. They're going to understand that I'm not going to try to steal from them. I'm not going to try to shaft them. That I'm not or going shop to shop them. Shop them. That or use that technology exactly. and go tell somebody else about it. Right. All those type of things. That I'm there for them, with them, on their team. I'm mm-hmm. just getting the pay structure is a little different. Mm-hmm. That's vastly different from when they engage somebody else that they don't have that trust with. So that takes time. To develop. So that's so cool for me because I, you know, I preach that all the time. It's really about all you really have is your trust at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then your trust gets better through the relationship, right? And relationships and trust are your two main keys. Everything starts from there, mm-hmm. and that even in sales, and that's cool to see that in product development. That that those same two things are huge. So. What do you do to develop better relationships with some of these people that you want to do business with? How do you, how do you, you know, do you take them out to dinner? You play golf with them? I mean, what do you do? It, again, I think it kind of depends on where you're at. One of the things that I did when I was running my product development shop is I had a monthly gathering where not only did I invite 
industry professionals, I invited my competition to my shop, to my studio, and I would do things. Uh, one of the things that I was known for is I would ask anybody to bring any object to the to this kind of Event. almost demo day is almost what it was. We would reverse engineer it real time, walk down to the machine shop and machine a prototype or a product that looks like it real time. And at the end of the night, would have that done. So it showed the start to finish process of design, machining, engineering, kind of quick. I landed more jobs from that than anybody, any other event that I did because these large corporations saw the speed at which we worked, the efficiency at which we worked, everything was done in-house, and we had all the tools to do these things. So it's a trust building. The, um, the competition aspect, when I had other people, we were bidding on the same jobs quite often. How do you edge out your competition? We're bidding on the same job. Uh, my numbers quite often were higher than their numbers, but I had that trust relationship. I was open and honest. And then when these executives from these large corporations would come to the studio, they, they would see these other people, and then they would see us. Our workflow is open and transparent. A lot of times these other ones were outsourcing. Quite often they outsourced to us. And that we just, you know, there's quite a few projects. They would win the bid. We'd still get a lot of the work uh, because I had good relationships with them. Because, again, they saw a workflow. We're open. And, uh, and so and it's a small industry. So And that see, that's fascinating to me, too, because I believe, like, on kind of same path but a little different category, mentoring, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand that the folks that are want to mentor you are willing to mentor you are the people that are really feel okay within their skin and where they've come in life and they're not really worried about you stealing their stuff, right? No, there's plenty of work for everybody. Yeah. When, when I think around it um, and I, I think about that, there's an enormous amount for all. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so I go back to almost every industry. And when people start acting as if there's a scarcity, sometimes there really is, but oftentimes it's a mindset. Mm-hmm. And when you're confident and when you're consistent in helping others mm-hmm. and being there for them first, not yourself first, it comes across as the truth and you know, the transparency comes that and then that's, that's where the, the relationship and that's where the relationship and trust comes in. So I remember when I had a, I used to have a clothing store and I had this guy coaching me. And so like somebody would come in and need a Navy blazer in a size I didn't have. And so they would leave my store and they would go down to the mall. And I had a little local store in Roswell. And this consultant said, no, man, call the other little stores around you and go meet those people and build a relationship with them. And if you don't have it, wouldn't you rather go to one of those guys that's like you than go down and you know, in Macy's and buy a blazer at Macy's. I said, I would. And he said, if you do that, he said, what will happen is you'll be, the, you'll be the hub and you've got these spokes of this wheel going to these other people. And what eventually happens is they all start calling you every Saturday. And this guy needs a blazer. This guy needs a button-down shirt. This guy's got a customer that needs a tie. So you send one out, but all five or six of those sent you somebody. and Your business actually goes up. Mm-hmm. because they trusted you. They haven't done that with each other. They've only done that with you because you were willing to go say, hey, we're in this together. There's enough business mm-hmm. for us. And if, if if you beat me on the deal, hey, man, you beat me on the deal, right? Is that the same, the same very, sort of stuff? Very similar. So what do the competition say about you? What would they say if I asked them, hey, do you know Shane? What's the buzz about Shane? Well, this was, again, you have to think about it. Um, I kind of shut down that whole group that I was doing that stuff with in 2000 timeframe. Okay. So I kind of semi-retired from one standpoint, uh, had a kind of a breakdown. I just, just disconnected from all. Since then I've done a few lifestyle businesses, uh, invested in some companies. And so I've, I've kind of gone a little bit different direction. If you talk to them even now, um, some of the people that from that time, I still stay in contact with, I still work with, they still call me up occasionally, ask my opinions and thoughts on projects that mm-hmm. they have going on. 
and I still send them business. Uh, so I still have a good relationship with with all of them. So they they're they're so really you're not really competing with them in essence. You're mentoring them mm-hmm. or you're referring them business. And so what's happened over the years? I've moved on, and you mentioned early on is I'm with ATDC now, which is a business incubator under Georgia Tech's uh, economic development arm. Mm-hmm. And I joined them several years ago and built out a vertical within their incubator that focuses on companies that make physical products, manufacturers products. When I first started that, uh, they had like a $15,000 budget and no idea where to go with it. And they kind of gave me full range. Just said, here, here you go, um, run with it. If you are successful, we're going to take credit. If you fail, we're not going to, we don't know you. <laughs> you know that was kind of the, the yeah. you know, under the radar kind yeah. of stuff. One of the first things I did was I pinged my network. And again, again having a good, solid network, all those people that were my competition early on came out and they supported uh, me and ATDC. They became sponsors. They donated equipment. They donated time. And they actually started teaching classes through the incubator because I didn't have the time and bandwidth to build all the class structure. Mm-hmm. So I architected the overall uh, feel of the program, and I actually helped them understand what we needed as an organization, as an ecosystem, as the economy for startups. Mm-hmm. And they stepped up and took those outlines, put full pitch decks together, and came in and taught the classes. And that's what helped get that off the ground. And so what's the budget now? So when I joined um, ATDC, there's just a handful of people, and uh, the total operating budget was less than a million dollars. Not just me. There's a group of us that have helped rise it up. Is I think the operating budget now is a little over three million dollars a year so annually. That's good. And there's a there's more than a handful of staff members in growing. Has anything cool come out of that ATDC? So what most people would probably hear of now that might be listening to this is uh, one of the more recent success is Greenlight, which is a credit card uh, for kids or a debit card for kids. Yeah, yeah, It also yeah. helps with financial literacy. If anybody looks up Greenlight, they're going to see it. That's one of the companies that came out of ATDC more recently. Uh, so now over a $2 billion valuation uh, for that company. So uh, does a person that had it in there, is it they still the same people own the stock and everything? I mean, mm-hmm. did Tech get anything for that? No. So Georgia Tech's a... Uh, set up this incubator is primarily funded by the state of Georgia and the sponsors. That's where the money comes in from. And anybody else wants to come in to help, we have a whole mentor network and a group of people that helps the startups. It's a product-based software or physical product. It doesn't have to be physical products. And there's a whole infrastructure to help you from understanding customer discovery, financial literacy, uh, telling your story, all that through raising money, through actually having successful startups. So so through that, the um, the types of companies that come through, you see a pretty wide range of companies, and the success is going to be based on a whole number of things from, and it really comes down to the founders um, and their mindset and how much they drive and how hard. Mm-hmm. We're not there to do work for them. We're there to help coach them and mentor them. Mm-hmm take zero equity um, to join the educate portion of the program it's $25 a quarter $100 a year and you get access to the whole infrastructure that's cheap yep that's cheap Uh, the accelerate and signature tiers which are the next levels where you really have a company formed and you're graduating or are you're really growing and scaling it's like $300 a quarter and $500 a quarter does that give you office space and all that no office space but it does give you um, access. Access. The office space is uh, subsidized by uh, the infrastructure there, mm-hmm. and it's subsidized for up to three years. So it goes from that subsidy level to market rate over a three-year period. So it gradually increases. Mm-hmm. All right, you said something that that, uh, that I love is something about tell your story. Yes. Right? So... I think that's huge. I think I think everybody's got a story, if it's personal or professional. Where does that play in to getting you know getting this whole thing off the ground and getting investors and all that stuff? I mean, what do you tell people on that? The first thing you have to understand is who are you 
who's your audience? Who going you tell to, the story to. Right. Going back to <laughs> that customer discovery aspect. Yeah. If you don't understand who, who you're telling the story to, you can tell the wrong story. Right. That's and, good. Right. So if you're, if you're talking to an investor, this is the story. They're going to want to know about the financials, the market, the team, you know, all those kind of things. Right. If you're trying to attract a co-founder or a technical founder or an employee, you're going to talk about the opportunity, the stock that they can have, uh, the culture of the company, the flexibility in the work schedule. You're going to talk about whatever you think that is going to attract that person. Right. If you're talking to a customer, you're going to talk about how it solves their problems, how the solution is going to save them money. What's the ROI? So depending on who you talk to, your story's got to change. Do you coach people on how to tell a better story? I do. And give me some elements of that. I mean, is there anything that you say, hey, it's got to have this or doesn't need to have this? Or Again, it kind of goes back to who you're talking to. Right. And then we kind of go around what are their assets and what are they going to need. If you're trying to attract an investor, we're going to need – solid financials you're going to need to articulate the problem and how your solution is addressing it you're going to need to talk about how you're going to attract the customers what the customer acquisition costs are what the lifetime value of the customer is how you're going to make money how you're going to you know grow the business where the money you're going to take from them where's it going to go right if you give me five million dollars am i going to what's going to happen with it yeah am i going to buy a portion right (laughs) Yeah, all those kind of things. So you talk about relationships. How is a relationship different when some of these folks are doing so much lead generation, social media advertising? I mean, are, are they able to build relationships that way? Well, you're not necessarily going to have an intimate relationship with every customer. Right. Uh, again, if you think about I'm solving a problem versus – I've got something that's a luxury item. So curing cancer, do you think you're going to have to market that? Mm-mm. No. Selling a Gucci bag, are you going to have to market yeah. that? Yes. So the people who has a cure for cancer, all they have to do is open the doors and people will find their cure. But if you're trying to sell something that is a very high luxury brand, you're going to have to convince them through social media marketing, through all the high-end influencer marketing and really go after that lustful individual. This is going to make you look this way. It's going to make you feel this way. And that becomes a marketing and positioning. So depending on where you fall within that, it goes from people finding you to you having to market to them. But what about people coming up with a product and they're trying to get it to the customer and they're spending a lot of time buying leads and stuff on online are you seeing companies being successful with that or not? it is uh, again it comes back to how much are they searching for the product you know how big of a problem is it and how are they searching and what's your competition and how targeted and how, you are right. on that too right so an example of that would be oh, uh, yeah damn sorry about that guys <laughs> no worries um so an example of kind of targeted marketing somebody's air conditioning goes out what are they going to do? They've got a problem, right? Right. So, they got a pain for sure. Right? <laughs> in the summer in Atlanta, yes. Exactly. So before the AC goes out, are they looking at AC companies? Probably not. They, they could care less. Mm-hmm. So if they go into Google, they're going to Facebook, or they're in Instagram, whatever, those advertisements for AC companies are not going to roll across their screen because they're not searching for that term. The minute they have a problem, they're going to go to the Internet and start searching AC companies nowadays. You know, 10 years ago, they would go to the white pages and yellow pages. Right. Or they'd go to their neighbor and ask their neighbor. Uh, but nowadays, it's a little bit different. So once they put in that search term into the search engine, next thing you know, everything across the board, including their phones, got advertisements popping up on, hey, look, we're an AC company. We can solve your problem. Right. And that's where the targeted marketing comes in. So, so understanding how that works uh, is... And a lot of people makes, don't. Mm-mm. But the, the companies that are getting the edge are the ones that are implementing these concepts of marketing. And what's important there is you want to make sure that terms that you don't want somebody, like a, a parallel industry, there's some terms that mean something in different industries. And what you realize is that that particular search term, every time somebody uses that term, comes to your website, they leave. 
and you're paying for that search term. Right. So you want to make sure that's blacklisted. So anytime somebody puts in that search term, they don't come to your website. Uh, so that's just as important because you can spend a lot of money in misguided people that people. aren't going to be buyers. Right. Who who knows how to do that stuff? I mean, if you if if I told you I needed to go talk to somebody, who what's the person that understands how to run that lead generation? There's some different firms around that do that. There's some different freelancers that do that. Are they marketing and people? Or typically they, marketing people. Marketing people. Mm-hmm. And they can put together all the software or put you on the right things that know how to, yeah. hey, you're looking for an AC, and I call it the rabbit hole, take you down That's a little it. rabbit hole to, to eventually get you to them, right? Yeah, so there's, there's different groups, and depending on the group that you find, and this is with every industry, and my opinion is you need to know what questions to ask before you engage with them. Because mm-hmm. unless you have that trust and you just know that they're good because – typically what they call word of mouth marketing if I tell you somebody's good and you say and you ask my opinion you're gonna put a higher weight on that than you will just organic search right so if you're just trying to start blind and you don't have any idea on who to ask some of the questions the biggest thing that I see is people engaging with a company or a firm Uh and they didn't ask the right questions to begin with and now they've had a professional engagement in a group that doesn't really yield results. They're spending a lot of money. They're spending a lot of money. So the first thing is it goes back to education. You have to educate yourself yeah. on whatever topics you need or find somebody that you trust that has gone down that rabbit hole before Yeah. that has some good results. Yeah. Because there's a, especially in today's world, the online uh, media and marketing changes so fast. Um, you have to really stay on top of it. So are you... Uh, what are you spending your time doing right now? What do you, what do you what's your your thing you're headed to? Trying not to work. Trying not to work. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I I try to figure out ways not to do things. Yeah, and that ends up being work itself. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, is that purposeful though? I mean, does that make you feel good about your day? Trying not to work. Well, I think it's a combination of a couple things. Is uh, I've got this little thing they call ADD, mm-hmm. and it. It makes it very difficult for me. I'm to watching you. Me. You don't have it near as bad as I do. Yeah. I'm sitting here. I can't yeah. stay still. Well, there, there's a difference of being calm and letting your mind run, right? And letting your body run and move. <laughs> my body runs so, before my mind. <laughs> yeah, my mind never shuts off. It's just always running like crazy. So does that mean you can't so, sleep at night? Most nights I don't, I don't sleep. How many hours do you sleep? It depends. Um, so last night I get. A, Went to bed probably close to 11 or 12. I woke up probably about 1, 1.30. Um, I went back to bed about 5.30 or 6. And I got up about 7.30, went back to bed for a little bit, and got and got out and, and left the house about eight, about 9.30. I had a, a call. So it's just sporadic. The night before that, I think I went to sleep the first time probably about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. I uh, woke up again probably about 4 or 5, went back to sleep. So I ended up catnapping throughout the nights. And really? even during the day, um, and I've tried having a family, I've tried to force myself more into a routine, mm-hmm. and it, it's a struggle. Um, it's a real struggle. And you credit that because your brain can't stop thinking? Yeah. If I, when the times I'm depressed and I'm not happy with life, I sleep more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but normally, I, my mind just will not turn off. And, what kind of stuff is going through your mind? Is it business stuff or? It's all kinds of stuff. Just anything. Yeah, whatever I'm working Is it on. stuff that you need to do or is it problems you can't solve? I mean, I know a lot of, like me, I, I mean, I sleep like a baby for eight hours and I get up and I'm rested and I'm ready to go. And then I know these people that are like you and it's like they just can't get to sleep and they just can't get their brain to shut down. Yeah, so, so I don't times, have the same problem. I'm trying to figure out. So a lot of times it's not necessarily about me trying to solve a problem. It's about being bored. Wow. And so, um, so when you look at what I've accomplished and what I've done, and when when I talk to people, I'm amazed sometimes about the the weird things I know about. Um, That's and, awesome. And most people that have a meeting with me, we'll sit down and we'll start talking about something. And I've never met with them before. Zero idea of what we're going to talk about. And 
a high number of times, not only do I have a pretty intimate knowledge about what they're working on, I can direct them to somebody in the industry that's working on something similar. You can get to the solution quick mm-hmm. on what the next step is. Right. Yeah. And it's because I have such base knowledge. And I think that's being pro in your sport too, yeah. right? So I tell people um, that for, for me, is a lot of it is um, being prepared. I mean, I had a conversation one day. Uh, we're talking about firearms, guns, and stuff. Yeah. And I've always just been interested in love the function behind them as well, obviously, with the stuff. Right. Well. Um, and it's one of the guys there made a comment and asked me if I was a prepper. I said, no, I'm not a prepper. What's and a prepper? It's one of the people who are waiting for the end of the world. Oh. So they've got all the food in the basement. They've got the bunker. They have all the guns. They have all this ammo. And they're just thinking the end of the world. And so so that's – so my immediate – it's like, no, I, I'm not worried about any of that. You know, that's the last thing I'm thinking about. It's just fun, right? It's right. enjoyable. It's a hobby. And then a couple minutes later, it hits me. Again, my, my subconscious back here going wild. I said, I want to change my answer. I said, I am a prepper, but not in the way that you think. Every day I prepare myself for tomorrow. Um, And I'll give an example of how that works. I ended up a few years ago being an advisor to the White House during Obama's administration, part of Business Forward Group. Uh, driving innovation. That's actually prior to when I joined Georgia Tech. That's part of how I ended up at Georgia Tech, actually. And the way I ended up with the White House speaking to what Obama's administration deemed the 40 top influencers of the U.S. around manufacturing ecosystems and things like that, and actually speaking to that group was because I was prepared for that opportunity when it presented itself. Mm. Prior to that, I was engaged with Atlanta's Invest Atlanta. Uh, Eloisa was great. I met her, and I started working with her, helping change the city of Atlanta and the way that they interact with small startups and incubating startups and attracting startups and and working to make it easier for entrepreneurs to start businesses in the city of Atlanta. I ended up there because I was prepared for those conversations, and it was because I had started another business to help entrepreneurs and I ran into some problems with the city of Atlanta getting certificate of occupancy for a building and permits and business licensing and all that stuff. I was like, if I'm having this problem and I'm pretty well versed in this, other entrepreneurs are probably having at least the problem I'm having, if not oh, yeah. a bigger problem. And worse, yeah. Right? So how do I help them? That's part of what I'm doing if I can't even get myself. And so, so again, I was prepared to start a business because I had started previous businesses. So everything, if you start backing up, when I hit something, I have prepared myself or I learn about whatever I hit, that wall, which prepares me for that next stage. And so it's a constant learn, evolution, grow, build. So learning is fun. Yeah, learning is fun. It's exciting to try to break through that wall. Well, it's, it's more about, to me, especially with ADD, I get bored with something very easily and yeah. quickly. So once I feel like I've mastered something, I'm done with it and I move to the next thing. So I'm constantly looking for that next thing to learn about. Hmm. And because of that constant learning, that grind to absorb and, and that's constant preparation for something that's going to be there possibly tomorrow. So the ADD has become a positive for you then. Yeah, I definitely look at it as a positive. Uh, I've been. They've. Uh, I've seen psychiatrists and psychologists over the years because of one thing or another. They've tried to medicate me several times. Uh, I've refused all medications. Um, they've tried to do things to calm me to keep me focused, and I've refused. And I think it's it's rough. I mean, I feel for my wife uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, because I am easily distracted. I mean, I can go upstairs to get something, come back downstairs without it four times, back to back. I get downstairs, I remember when I went upstairs, I go upstairs again, and I get back downstairs, and I was like, oh, wait, I was supposed to get that thing. Um, Because there's sometimes I'm just that distracted, easily distracted. Do you write stuff down? I do. Uh, Because they say if you write it down, your mind can can forget about it because it knows you're going to come back and visit it. So um, there's this... 
Do you know what a Trello is? Trello boards? Mm -mm. I will show you this real quick. Grab my phone and I'll see. So those of everybody out there that's looking, there's a lot of tool sets that can help with organizational stuff. And Trello is one of them. And uh, it's been a game changer for me. So I'm gonna, I'll show this kind of to the camera in a second, but I'm gonna show Steve first. So this is kind of my Trello board. So each one of these boards is a list of things to do uh, from my personal stuff. It's a task pad. It's a task pad, basically. And projects, um, and so these are different companies that I'm working with. These are different projects I'm working on. So each one of these is a board of a to-do list. So each one of these boards looks slightly different. So if I pull up like this one, uh, which is um, a design, you can see this urgent task on deck, working on, follow up, and done. And some notes and things to think about, questions and answers. So it's just a it's a workflow, and you can drag That's and awesome. drop from one to another. That's awesome. Um, and so for those out there, if you can see it. So it's just a workflow tool. You focus in a second there. And where you know this is one that's pretty empty. This is a completed one, with that I did, um, and to to backtrack. So do you find yourself? Getting up in the middle of the night and adding to that because your brain was thinking about it? Yes. So this is how I organize my life now um, with, with the ability to leverage those tools. I can go back and see where I started and stopped on certain projects. So when I get distracted and I, and I move from one project to the next, and when I come back around to that first project I was working on, I can pick up where I left off. So that's handy. if I come back. If you come yeah. back, that's the challenge. Do you come back, back only because somebody reminded you, or somebody well, said, "Hey, where are you on that shape? Sometimes, <laughs> quite often, uh, and other times it's because I was interested in it. And I just and I'll, I'll look at it. And go, oh yeah, and then I'll get reengaged. So when I'm most effective is when people leave me alone. I'll get focused on something, and it's not just me; it's with a team even. So I can work within a team, and I've got to be careful because I'll have a I'll have the tendency to drive a team harder than I probably should at times. Mm -hmm. Since my mind doesn't turn off, if I'm looking to drive hard and fast, if I'm actually engaged and active, then it can be hard to keep up. So you you get on something, or are you trying to get through it as quick as you can to find all the good and bad spots so that you can say, like, all right, we got to cut. This is not going to work. Yes. To, all right, we got something here, right? Yeah. Fell fast or fell forward. Yeah, so you know, I do that with real estate. I look at a house, should I buy that house, and my brain just starts spinning on all the questions that I've got on it to fix it up. Can I rent it? What's it worth? What can I get it for? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And within, for me, you know, usually within a couple of minutes, I'm like, I need to go further or nah, this deal ain't going to work. Right. Right? I guess you're that way with, with, with your mm -hmm. stuff. And that comes back to your experience. The very first time you look at a house, you probably couldn't That's process it so, like you do now. So true. Yeah. So true. That's a good point. So experience is key. And um, so what? Um, so right now you're just trying to lay low and trying to help some people out. And you've already got the tech thing going. Well, so I've got about 30 companies I'm working with pretty consistently um, from intellectual property strategies to business strategies to just product market fit, all the things to grow a business. And in are they all startup stuff, or are they are most of them are they like Procter and Gamble's and Coca Cola's? No, all the startup stuff. All the startup mm -hmm. stuff. That's more fun for you. It is than yeah. than working yeah, with. A big I'm not court. a huge fan of politics. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and the boy, there's a bunch of that in the in right. the big companies, right? Yeah, the big companies pay well, um, and you can make a lot of money, but you have to be prepared for the way that they operate. And they're slower. And they're yeah, they're slower. There's more hoops to jump through typically. Uh, a lot, they the regulatory stuff is up front with a startup. lot of legal stuff, a lot of right? Legal store stuff. Yeah, but the young guys are ready to go. They're ready to get it moving. They don't sleep either. They're, they're your guy. They're your your people, right? right? Yeah, I have. Um, if you look at my email threads and even a lot of my call logs, I have on a regular basis. I have conversations with founders at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, because that's the time when. They can focus, and I can focus on the problem at hand. There's no distractions. No distractions. During the day, they're being pulled by their team. They've got meetings. 
they're trying to meet with investors or uh, customers, all that stuff. They're putting out fires. In the afternoons, they've got family, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got bedtime. And at night, a lot of them don't sleep either. At night is when they can focus. Are those new companies in Atlanta finding money to do what they need to do? Is the money there? There's zero shortage of money if you've got a great idea with a great team to execute. That's interesting. So you can go find the money. Yeah, none of the companies I'm working with that are truly ready for capital have a problem finding capital. What about talent in Atlanta? Is the talent here in Atlanta for people to do what they need to do? There... So talent right now, um, that is, that's a tough one. Uh, we are definitely in a market where talent's ruling right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's no shortage of jobs looking for talent. Um, are people outsourcing a lot of their stuff because it's cheaper and more talent somewhere else? Well, the, the hard part is when you when you look at levels of, when I'm looking at levels of talent, you've got the savants that are just going to be crazy, right? Then you've got the people who are solid to the people who work mm -hmm. to the people who are incompetent. <laughs> uh, you have a lot of incompetent people. Right. And that doesn't mean they're incompetent with everything, but they just with whatever they're trying to do for you. Right. Then there's a lot of people that are good employees. But the higher you get up that ladder, the more difficult it is to find quality people that can truly have impact at a price that you startup can afford. Mm -hmm. And that's where a large corporation can have a whole bunch of these lower tier people that can still move it forward because they have the time, they've got the market domination, they've got access to the customers, they have the relationships with the customers, they have all these things, so they don't need that top talent to scream along to outpace everybody because they have that mass. The startups need that top talent because they move so rapidly. They need somebody's to, good and fast and just right. hard, and so those and, guys cost money to, to bring they, them up. And there's fewer of them. Yeah. So it depends on where you're at on that scale. Are those cats coming out of places like tech? Uh, a lot of the top-tier ones, there's some out of tech, uh, there's some out of all the universities. There's also a lot of coding schools like General Assembly and uh, Big Nerd Ranch and places like that, mm. which are graduating through boot camps, uh, students slash uh, coders that... Kind of like going to get a little master's or... or well, they'll, they'll take you from zero to uh, like a hundred in... No time. No time. Because it's focused. They're not filling in those, those type of groups... They don't care about social studies. They don't care about history or math. They care about teaching you how to code and architect systems. And putting you out on the street and you can start making some right. money. Uh, and and the, the, the great example of that, I'm all for education. I'm not sure I'm all for college degrees. Yeah. Um, but education is paramount to being successful. The way you get educated is through learning. The way you learn is all kinds of different ways. Our girls are homeschooled, uh, been, they're homeschooled now, and uh, our youngest was diagnosed with leukemia uh, several years back, so we put them in Montessori school, our oldest one, and then after COVID hit, uh, you know, we were happy with the Montessori school, uh, great programs there, but Montessori just was not ready for COVID. They're not technology driven, the teachers don't understand technology, they understand the Montessori school of thought. So, when COVID became more than a month, more than six months, <laughs> more than a year, we pulled them out and started homeschooling again. Most of their friends in Montessori school, same thing, but their parents at the end, they put them in, half of them went to private schools, a few went to public schools, uh, but very, I don't think any of them were homeschooled. We started homeschooling our girls. Uh, we met other people who still homeschooled. Through that, my oldest daughter's best friends started going to these schools and they started talking about the algebras and the science, all the classes because they, they were in a class structure. Montessori school never had that. So it was new to them. Our daughter was feeling left out. So she started talking about going to a school. So we 
interviewed at a couple private schools and they gave us a entrance placement test for our oldest daughter to take. And this became very interesting very quickly because it just sat and sat and she didn't do it. And when we started really talking to her more about what's going on, uh, it came through several conversations, it came to the surface that she didn't know the answers. And uh, so my wife was the first one to start talking to her. She's like, well, I'll help you. She goes, no, 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 I don't want your help. I'm supposed to know this, right? This is me. I'm supposed to know this, and I don't know this. She's like, well, let me just help you a little bit. So my wife started looking at it. Well, I don't know this stuff. And she goes, well, what do you mean? Well, let's get Dad. So I looked at it. I was like, hmm, I know some of it, but I don't know most of this stuff. So then she got her grandfather, Poppy, came over, and he looked at it. He's like, well, I know some stuff, but I don't know most of this stuff. So here, our 13-year-old at the time says, okay, my mom doesn't know it. She's successful. My dad doesn't know it. He's successful. My poppy doesn't know it. He's successful. Why do I need to know it? She's right. <laughs> and so, so she started asking all these questions like, look, look, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you. You know, very logical brain. You know, right. Very, very analytical. And... And so she started trying to learn some of it for the placement test. She took the placement test uh, eventually with some tears. And they said, yeah, you know, they said, you know, we welcome to the school. We can put you some classes. Because, again, it wasn't like a pass-fail. It's just where do we need to put you within the mm -hmm. education, especially being Montessori and homeschool. There's never a class, never a grade. She'd never taken a test before. This was her first actual test. That's crazy. Classroom test. Yeah. And, and through that conversation um, – She'd made a decision not to go to school. So we had a multitude of conversations about it. Uh, again, I'm avid for education. So she's, we've got her in a co-op school now. Mm -hmm. So she takes classes. She does online classes. So it's a little more of a hybrid. So it's a hybrid. Mm -hmm. uh, and she knows things that I don't know. Um, uh, and it goes back to, this goes back to the ability to learn. Uh, and this was my first indication she's going to be fine. She wanted a guinea pig when she was really little. She couldn't read or write. She had an iPad. And if anybody's ever used Siri, you know Siri's amazing. And it started here and, in Atlanta. And um, and so I told her that if she wanted a guinea pig, I said, well, why do you want a guinea pig? And she would just tell me. And I said, well, do you know how to take care of a guinea pig? When I say I know, she's telling me everything about a guinea pig. And I'm like, how do you, where, where's that coming from? How do you know? Well, YouTube. And I, I realized she was leveraging Siri voice recognition, voice to text, to search YouTube before she could read and write. Ah, uh, that's cool. And so, so these are the way that people can think and learn and grow and, in be, way, successful. and be successful. Because at the end of the day, in order to be successful, you just have to know what you need to know right. for whatever you want to do. And it's right. going to be different. Right. What a doc doctor knows is different than what a mortgage broker yeah. knows, which is different than yeah. what a scientist knows or a rocket engineer knows. So, um, you know, running the camera, you know, the yeah. red camera is an awesome camera. I call it going then, pro in your right. sport, you know. And that's it. That's like, uh, you know, I remember reading about Jerry Rice, and so he was one of the first guys that trained other than during the football season, right? Mm -hmm. He wanted to get better, so he was going to ballet, and he was running up sand dunes, and – he was doing video of himself catching the ball and just started getting into all this other stuff. But it all came back to him being the best wide receiver he could be. That's right? it. And that's I like you know um, I like to say that you know once you once you go pro in your sport, then you get invited to the Pro Bowl. If you get invited to Pro Bowl, they'll pay you stupid money. Yes. And that's really where you're headed if that's if that's your thing. You don't. You don't, you don't have to be doing it for the stupid money, but if you're really, really the guy, they pay you. College dropout, faculty at Georgia Tech. <laughs> right? That's right. I mean, I would have never thought that I was going to be working at any sort of educational institution, much less one of the premier educational institutions in the world. Just period. I mean, but I'm here. Yeah. And I'm there. It's awesome. And I'm successful there. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, and it's because that I'm willing to learn. I'm conforming to some extent. The most I've conformed to a lot of things over my life. And I'm having impact. 
and I've learned a lot because of that. And you're giving back. You're giving back. I think that's a huge piece. Yeah, I'm not there for any other reason than to build community and help them build their organization. Is it amazing to you that the more you give, the more you receive? It is. And a lot of people just haven't gotten jiggy with that. They don't. They don't. Yeah. They don't know that. No, I think there's a that ten percent give that growing up. Uh, wherever you feel like religion-wise or anything else, there's this 10% tithe. tithe. Right? To me, that's not cash to the church. That's 10% of your time given back to the community. Yeah. And so if you think about it that way, is to give back. If you take 10% of your day and you do something good for the community, it's going to come back. Yeah. The minimum. That's the minimum. That's the minimum. That's the minimum. Well, Shane, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, is there anything that uh, we hadn't talked about that you think is important for people to know? Push hard, drive hard. Push hard, drive hard. Yeah. All remember, right. Just remember, slow is fast. Slow <laughs> is fast. Mm-hmm. You know, and I learned that one time on YouTube where I was, I can't stand the mechanic things because I get going and then I, and I remember reading this, watching this YouTube and the guy was, all he kept saying is if you go slow on doing repair work, you'll always love it better because it'll come out, you'll finish it on time. And I used that a couple of times, but I still can't do much on repair work. But slow is fast. So thank you all for being here for a Beach Talk. Thank you, Shane, for being here and kind of helping us understand how the invention process goes and and I uh, hope you guys enjoy it. So look for us on Spotify and iTunes and, and YouTube. Thank you, Shane. All right. Have a good one.